My name is Brad, and I'm the lead pastor here at Hillside Church, and I want to thank you for listening to one of our messages from Hillside Church. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of Scripture is still speaking today. So if it's me speaking or if it's someone else, we pray that the message you are about to hear would allow you to know God, know His hope, know His purpose, and know His power. Enjoy the message. You can turn to Ezra chapter 9 this morning. Um, This is where we're going to to be. We're going to look at the last two chapters of the book of Ezra today. We're bringing our series on Ezra to a close. But I do want to give you just a bit of a heads up as we begin to walk through these two chapters. Um, We're going to be talking about some things today that can make us very uncomfortable. Um, Things that as, as a church and as a people, we don't really like to talk about. We're going to be talking about sin this morning, the the reality and the realness of sin and how we need to, to, to confess our sin and what that looks like and what repentance looks like and, and even deeper than, than the idea of sin, which already can be so uncomfortable for so many, that, that we like to hear about grace and forgiveness, but we don't always like to hear about the things we need grace for and forgiveness from. But this morning, we're going to talk about those things. But even deeper than that, we're going to talk about the consequences of sin. Um, Some some things that that as we think, well, we've got grace and we've got forgiveness. But sometimes there's consequence. And so I just want to let you know that as we begin this this journey through our text this morning, that there might be some pressure points that get, get pushed in your life today. But it's been a really interesting, and I hope you've enjoyed the journey that we've taken through the book of Ezra, but it's been a really interesting journey that this this book takes because it starts out very clearly being about one thing and ends up being about something completely different by the time we get to the end of the book. The, The first part of the book, it's all this miraculous story of God bringing his people back from captivity, back to the promised land, back where it all started from the very beginning of everything at the beginning of the story is just this incredible, miraculous story of God and his work and the rebuilding of the temple and just this incredible providence of the Lord and provision of the Lord. But then in Ezra chapter 7, when actually Ezra finally shows up in the book, we see that there's more going on than, than just God's desire to have a building rebuilt. We see God's desire for his people, and we see that it's more than just simple construction that needs to take place, but it's, it's people's lives that need to be overhauled. And so that's, that's really where we begin in Ezra chapter 9, is this process of, of seeing what it means not for a building to be rebuilt, but for a people to be restored. Ezra chapter 8 ends with Ezra traveling around the country, delivering more orders from, from the king of, of, of Syria. We, we, we talked of our king of... The king of wherever they're from, I can't remember now. My, blind, my mind is Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. Kings of Persia, Persia, that's the name of it. I was like, I, I can't remember. I've only talked about it for four weeks in a row. But sometimes your mind just draws a blank. But he's, he's delivering all these orders. But in the beginning of Ezra chapter 9, 
Some of the leaders of the community, they come to Ezra and, and they tell him what amounts to the people's dirty secret. The thing that's going on in the life of the community that nobody really wants to talk about, but everybody kind of knows is happening and they know it's not right. In the joy and the excitement of being restored of, as God's people, we see that the people actually forget what it means to be God's people. That God's brought them back and he's doing this amazing work. And they're thinking, oh, it's so good. God is so good. God is so great. I love, he's doing these amazing things. But in the middle of all of it, they, they actually lose focus and lose sight on what it means to be God's people. So Ezra chapter 1 begins like this. Now, one thing about the book of Ezra, the verses are very long. So some of these verses are split over a couple of slides. But it says, after these things had been done, to the, the, had been done after he's delivered all these orders from the king, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They really should have switched Egyptians and Amorites there just for the sake of the rhyming. Um, but they come and they tell them this. And it says, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. They come and they tell them, this is what's going on in our people. This is what's going on in our midst right now. The people of Israel have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples. They should have kept themselves pure and distinctive. And instead, the verses will say, they've mingled the holy race which means they've become like every other nation. And, and what we see here is, is what's highlighted is, is the idea that they were marrying people from, from other communities, from other people groups. Now, something we need to address right out of the gate, because this can be a bit of an awkward conversation to have as we look at this, um, this is not a racist principle or command. As we see as we walk through this, God's concern was not somehow that like the, the, you don't want to mingle with these people because they're, they're, they're less than you. That, that because they're a different race or they're, they're a different culture group that somehow it's, it's, it's that just their culture is flawed. But what we're going to see is God's command to them had everything to do with, with them remaining true to him. And we, what we read is, is, as the Lord led his people out of Egypt and ready to enter Canaan, he was very clear that the people were not to make a covenant, the people of Israel that were bringing, being brought into the promised land, they were not to make a covenant with the people around them. That was God's very explicit command and instruction not to follow their customs and practices and not to worship their gods. See, that's so much of what the Old Testament law was, was so much of it was not necessarily because these things were just better, but it was God's way of ensuring that his people would be distinct. That he, they would not be living like the people around them. That so much of his instruction was just so that they would be different. And it says this in Deuteronomy. It says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. 
For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will quickly destroy you. See, what God says is you're not supposed to, because it's going to cause you to compromise. You're going to enter into a relationship with people and, and it's going to end up hurting you in the long run. That you may think, hey, we're going to go and be in relationship with them and we'll save them. But that's not what's going to take place. And God says, don't, don't do it. But at the, Ezra chapter 9 opens with the leaders of the community coming to Ezra and saying, this is exactly what's happening. God's people, by marrying those from other relations, have entered into relationship with them. I don't know if you know this or not, but when you marry someone, you've entered into a relationship with them. That, that they, they become a part of you and their customs become your customs and the way they do things becomes the way you do things. That if, 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 I got, when I, if when I got married to Yvonne, if I tried to do everything exactly the same way I did it before I was married, I wouldn't be married to Yvonne today. That's not, and it's not even that anything that I did was wrong or bad. But you enter into a relationship with somebody and for the relationship to be healthy, there has to be compromise. But God's saying, don't do that. Don't enter into a relationship where you're going to have to compromise what it means to be my people. They're compromising their position as the pure, distinctive people of God. They've allowed what God commanded them, wanted from them to be compromised because they didn't like it. Because they wanted to marry these other people. And so they, they said, well, we're just not going to listen to God. In disobeying the word of God, they've said, no, Lord, we're not going to obey what you've told us. We, we, we are deciding against the lordship of God in our lives. And we, we can do the same thing. We, we can do the same thing, arrogantly saying that we know best, rejecting what God has told us, called us to do, because we want something else. Because we think something is better. Something we desire more than what God has for us. That, that I look and I go, I know exactly what it is that God wants for me. But who cares? I want that. That looks better. It's the same compromise that the devil tempted Eve with at the very beginning of human history. Are you really sure that that's what God said? You know, if you don't listen to God... All kinds of good things are going to happen. And it's the, the same compromise that we're confronted with today. It's not that bad. I've seen other Christians do it. How can it be bad? Morals, they're, they're just different now. But living distinctly has always been an issue for God's people, and it's still something we're called to do today. It's often expressed like this. Scripture will say, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to live in this world, but we are called to be distinct. But this proposes attention for us. As we try to live this out. We may not live in the world. For fear of becoming like the world. 
but then we can become exclusive, staying away from any real engagement with others, that, that I just refuse to engage at all with the world around me for fear of becoming like the world. But Jesus said we're supposed to be in the world. But we may also become so immersed in the world that we then become like the world and we end up losing the things that God has called us to do to be different. That we become so in the world that we forget we're not supposed to be of the world. So desperate to live in a way that doesn't look weird that we don't decisively and distinctively put the Lord first in our lives. And that's what the people are guilty of here is not putting the Lord first. And when Ezra hears what's happening in Jerusalem, it, it affects him to his core. It says this, when I heard this, I, I, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. He hears what's going on and it breaks his heart and it says he tears his clothes and he pulls his hair out of his head, something I cannot relate to. But he said that he pulled hair from his beard. Okay, I can get that one. Um, but there's this moment where it just rattles and shakes him and breaks him down to his core. And if we jump down to verse 6 of Ezra chapter 9, Ezra just begins to to pour his heart out before God, to, to confess before God what's going on. Verse 6 says this, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. But now, oh, I missed a verse in there. From the days of our ancestors, until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Ezra comes to this moment where he, he confesses before the Lord. And then there's two things that, that we can pull out of this to help us understand his heart and our heart towards these things. The, the first thing that is so striking is how Ezra identifies with God's people. See, he calls them our sins. Even though he hasn't personally committed all these sins that has left him, as he says, so appalled. He could have easily self-righteously prayed, oh God, look at the state of the nation. What have they done? Oh Lord, change them. Yet he knows that he's part of the people of God. So the sins of God's people are his sins. It's very easy for us to, to look down our noses at the sins of others and, and begin to feel self-righteous. And that leads to proud praying, which are two things that cannot go together. You can't pray and be proud. That that's, that's not the heart that we come to the Lord with. It's, it's not out of a heart of pride, but we need to come out of a heart of humility. And the second thing to notice out of, out of these couple of verses is how Ezra's confession, how, how as he talks about what's taking place in the life of Israel, Ezra, Ezra's words, his prayer, they start by acknowledging the gravity of sin. 
He doesn't make light of it or excuse it. He doesn't say, oh, well, we're people after all. He, he doesn't say, God, like, these things, but, but really, is it that bad? Really? Rather, Ezra says that he feels ashamed and disgraced. He essentially says, God, I, I can't even look you in the eye. He says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you. He paints a picture of sins piling up and the pile is high. He says, our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. But then we, we come to verse 8. We've read verse 6 and verse 7, but then we come to verse 8. And Ezra's prayer for his people begins to shift as he's pouring out his heart before God. He says in verse 8, but now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and driving, or in giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief from our bondage. Though we are as slaves, God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the king of Persia. Oh, this is a long verse. That's why, because there's two parts to this verse. He has, I'm like, I can't figure out where I am. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra's prayer is he's pouring out his heart and, and bringing before God everything that's gone on continues with this turning of, of the seriousness of sin, the wrong that the people had done, and he begins to see God's grace through all of it. Aware of the enormity of the sins of God's people, Ezra knows the only hope we have, the only good things we have, is through God's grace. It's plain for Ezra and it's plain for us that, that without God's people, or without God's grace, his people could have never earned their freedom in God's eyes. Without grace, the, the, without the grace from God, the only response to the people's goodness would be for them to, to stay in slavery. That, that they hadn't earned their way out of bondage, but because of God's grace, he's bringing them back. And then Ezra concludes this prayer with a couple of really powerful things in verses 13 through 15 that, that show us a couple of really significant things. Verse 13 says, What has happened to us as a, as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt? And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and has given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant here because, or here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it no one, or not one of us can stand in your presence." We see Ezra, he calls the deeds of God's people evil in verse 13. He admits guilt in verse 13 and he, he confesses we've broken God's commands in verse 14. And friends, this is a very scary thing to do. This is a very scary place to be. Because when we come to the Lord 
And when we stand before him and, and we, we, we confess that the things we've done, they're, they're wrong, they're evil, we're guilty, it's scary because it leaves us completely vulnerable without a place to defend ourselves, without a deflection, without a distraction from our own sin. But what we need to know is, as followers of Christ, the reason why this is uncomfortable for many of us is because even though we, we may have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and even though we may know that we're sons and daughters of the living God, we often still see and approach our sin like someone trying to earn salvation. That we, we see and approach our sin like someone still trying to earn their way into heaven. We worry that an admission of guilt will leave us doomed. With the Lord angry enough to destroy us, like Ezra says in verse 14. We know that the Lord would be quite justified in wiping out every one of us. Again, like he says in verse 14, we are aware that the Lord would be perfectly righteous in seeing our guilt to cast us out of his presence forever, like Ezra says in verse 15. So when we come before the Lord and when we understand our sin as this thing and we don't treat it like we should as sons and daughters, we somehow feel like all of a sudden I need to start minimizing the sin in my life. I need to try and hide the sin in my life from God. I need to try and, and, and figure out a way to justify myself before God. Even though I may know that there's no justification for it and there's no way to hide it. But I still feel like these things. But, but that's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus Christ, that somehow we need to live in fear of the repercussions of the bad things I do. And if I, if I come to God and I say that, that God, I've sinned, that somehow God's response is going to be anything other than I love you, my child, and I forgive you. But we can live with this fear of what if he doesn't do that? Knowing the gospel gives us the freedom to be completely honest with ourselves and honest with God about our evil deeds and our guilt. There's no need to pretend. There's, there's no need to hide. Confession and repentance is actually liberating. It doesn't need to be fearful. It doesn't need to be scary. So we don't need to hide. We don't need to minimize. We don't need to deflect or distract or justify my, my sins to myself or God because we can be confident of God's goodness and grace in our lives and in our sins. I just need to take the bold step of calling my sin what it is. My sin. Understanding the weight and the seriousness of it, how wrong my sin was and is, but then giving my sin up to God and trusting that although God would be justified in doling out all kinds of punishments and consequences, that his response will be to love me in the middle of my sin, but to love me enough not to leave me there, to love me enough to show me where my sin is wrong, and to love me enough to walk with me into freedom from my sin. 
And this process, this, this walking forward process, it begins with a heart of repentance. Now, if you don't know repentance, it's a Bible word. It's, it's a word that we use to talk about this. And it, it literally just means turning around. The, the, the heart of the word just literally means facing this way and then making a decision to face this way. That, that, that's the, the picture that, that the word means, but it's a picture of seeing where we are and what we're doing and making a choice to not continue in those things, to not continue saying, I am headed this way and I realize this is not the way I want to go. And so I'm going to go this way. On uh, Friday night after we dropped Owen off here for youth, um, my, my youngest son, Theo, um, snuck into the front seat of the van and made Yvonne sit in the back seat. Um, but on the way home, what we did was I said to him, okay, Theo, you tell me where to turn. You're going to tell us, if you're going to sit in the navigator chair, you're going to navigate. So you tell us how to get home. And so he would tell, I think we're supposed to turn here. And we would turn and we ended up in a parking lot. And, and we literally had to repent of the parking lot and turn and go the other way. That, that, that's a picture of, of what this means. Is he said, you're supposed to turn right here. So we turned right there into the parking lot. And that's not what we were supposed to do. We saw where we were headed and said, this building doesn't look like our home. Let's turn around and go the other way. It's doing something different. And, and it's, it's what we're about to see take place in the lives of the people here. So in Ezra 9, as Ezra makes his prayer, as he begins to pour out his heart before God, as he's shredding his clothes and pulling out his hair and his beard, we actually see that he's doing this in the sight of everybody. He doesn't go and hide. He doesn't go away. He just has this moment with the Lord where he feels this feeling and he just begins to weep and to pour out his heart before God. And as he's doing this, people are seeing him and they're hearing what he's saying and, and they're going, he's right. He's right. And it says that the people begin to, to, to see their sin and, and they begin to respond like this. Verse 1 of, of Ezra 10 says, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. See, Ezra was a man with a mandate. The Lord took him to Jerusalem to bring about a rebuilding, not, not the rebuilding of a building, that had already taken place, but the rebuilding of a people. And now as his heart breaks before the Lord, we see the influence that he has as everyone else's heart begins to break before the Lord. The people are behind him and they see what's taking place. Last week we talked about how Ezra was devoted to the study of God's word, to following God's word, and to teaching God's word. Not only knowing the law, but wanting to live out God's word. You, the Lord uses Ezra's devotion to him to lead him to a place of uncompromising public confession and repentance to bring about a bigger rebuilding than any temple. And so we jump to the last place we're going to look at today. We're going to look at sort of the conclusion of what takes place. You can skip down to verse 10. They, everybody's brought together. The whole company of people. There's about 40,000 people that are all brought together. And, and Ezra gets up in front of them and he begins to, to speak. In verse 10 it says this. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, 
You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. Now we see that even through this process of confession and repentance and giving our sin over to God, sin can still carry some very, very heavy consequences in our lives. To honor God and and to come back to his will for them was going to come at a terrible cost. Lives are going to be deeply affected and hurt. Families are going to be torn apart. Lives are going to be in, I can't even think of the word, but completely separated and ruined. There's going to be this shaking in the lives of people that's going to take place that is going to be utterly disastrous inside their lives. Repentance is about to come at a huge cost. Ezra was calling the people to give up a lot and to sacrifice a lot in order to set things right. The people were not given an option to figure out where to go from here. The people were not given an option to say, okay, well, this is where we find ourselves. How do we make this right? Can, can they all become Jew? Like, how, how do we do this? How, how do we make this right? They, they, they were told it's going to come at a huge cost. Now, there's two responses to this that we can have. Why would God want this? God is love. God is mercy. God is grace. This isn't the God we serve. Why would a God who is a God of love, who would forgive us for all of our sins, why would he want that? Isn't this supposed to be about grace? But in the cross of Christ, in Jesus' death on the cross, we see the seriousness with which God takes justice. The seriousness of his righteousness. And the overwhelming weight of sin. And so then instead of why God, we need to look inside And we need to see that when all of our reasons, all of our justifications, and all of our feelings about who we are and and the sin in our lives and how we justify it all, they don't hold up when we understand how seriously God takes sin. But God, I loved her. I married her because I loved her. It's not enough. In the face of sin. But in the face of this tragic situation, with pain no matter which way the people turn, the response of God's people is to choose to be God's people. Verse 12 says, The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right! 
We must do as you say. With no excuses. And with understanding the cost, they face up to their sin. So where does this story leave us? Where does this journey through the book of Ezra bring to us today at the conclusion of the story? So usually you like to end these kind of sermon series with like a nice, really hopeful, see everything turns out great in the end kind of journey. That's usually the arc. You want to bring it back up at the end. But Ezra doesn't necessarily end like that. Ezra is an amazing story of the power of God to do the impossible. First, we see the impossible and the tangible rebuilding of the temple. We saw so many miracles. And we saw God do so much that seemed impossible. And so many times the people seemed defeated. But God remained faithful and step by step, moment by moment, led the people in this rebuilding. But we also see that God isn't just concerned with the rebuilding of his temple. More than that, it's the rebuilding of his people. We saw moments of commitment and dedication to God. We saw how they stuck to God's word and commanded or commandments in Ezra chapter 2. We saw how their first priority in the rebuilding was to rebuild the altar so that they could get back to worshiping God as soon as possible. But we also see that the people began to slip and slip away from what God had for them. God continues to remain faithful and step by step, moment by moment, lead the people in the rebuilding of themselves as God's people, separate and distinct from the world. So I think where the book of Ezra brings us to is we're left with a question and a promise coming out of our time together today and our time together in this book. First, the question where do we need God's rebuilding in our lives? Where do we need the Lord to rebuild us? Where have we allowed compromise or sin to inject itself into the way we think or live? Maybe it's, it's been a choice, a specific moment where we're able to say, I know I did that. Or, Maybe instead of like a tire blowing out, it's just been a really slow leak. And you don't know when it started. You don't really know when it happened. But suddenly my tire's flat. And I'm not, not quite sure why. Where do we need to have our Ezra moment? Where we come to God on our knees and we come before God and we just say, God, I know I've messed up. And we bring our sin before God. We confess the sin that we have to the Lord. And then we turn and we repent. Not with excuses. Not with justifications. Not, not with, yeah, what about them? Not with our, our attempts to make things different than what they are. But just in humble submission to God with a heart that says, Lord, I've done wrong. Psalm 139 there's a couple verses that are instructive 
for us in this process. David, David will, will write this as his prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way, other translations will say wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And what I believe Ezra is for us in terms of a question today is for us to have a moment with God where we pray that same thing. The invitation that we get from the book of Ezra is to pray that same prayer. God, search me, try me, look at my thoughts, look at my actions, look at how I'm living, and show me where I need to be rebuilt. Maybe, maybe it's a short conversation where God just goes, huh? And you go, yeah. Or maybe it's going to bring something out of us that we didn't even know was there. That we go, I didn't even realize that that's something I had in my life. God, where do I need you to be, rebuild me so that I can be who I'm created to be? But that's the question. That's the question. There's also a promise that we find in the book of Ezra. And the promise is actually is encapsulated in the last phrase of this verse where it says, and lead me in the way everlasting. See, when we allow God to search us and for us to be confronted by the bad parts about us, we don't need to come there in fear or guilt our shame. We don't need to come uncertain of how our Father in heaven will respond. We can know he will love us enough to meet us there and love us enough not to leave us there. In the book of Ezra, we see the loving kindness of God deliver his people out of bondage and out of exile. For Ezra and his time and his people, that, that, that was literal. That they were brought out of bondage, out of exile, back to Jerusalem. It was no metaphor. It was a real picture. But for us, the idea of, an ex of exile and slavery and being brought home may be more of a metaphor. It's probably not a literal story for you. But it is perhaps a metaphor. But it's still true for us. We read in, in John chapter 8. Jesus replied, very truly... I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Anybody here sin? Show of hands. No, don't show you. You don't have to do that. <laughs> everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Am I a slave to sin? I wish I could answer differently. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. But Jesus begins now to unpack for us who we are. We may, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, but that's not all who you are. Verse 35, he says, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Now are we slaves? Or are we children of God? We are children of God. So Jesus tells us this. We may be a slave to sin, but we're children of God, which means we have a permanent place in the family, which permanent means it's not going anywhere. 
And so in verse 36, Jesus says this, and this is the hope, this is the promise, this is what we take away from the book of Ezra. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The story of the book of Ezra is the story of God's people being set free because of God's grace. That's the story. That's the promise that we have. That as we come before the Lord and we say, God, I have sinned. And we see that that makes us a slave to sin. That Jesus will say, I will set you free. That we don't come in fear of, is God going to shoot me with a lightning bolt from heaven? Am I going to be kicked out of the family? Am I going to lose my salvation? Am I going to have to have God come and rain down his violence upon me? No. We don't lose our sonship. We don't lose being part of the family. But we're going to be set free. You're a slave to sin, but as a child of God, you're going to be free. We are slaves to sin. But in his gracious, loving kindness, he has bought us out of our bondage to sin, freed us from the wicked slave masters we naturally want to serve, and sets us on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, we, we as a people and we as persons come before you now, even in this moment, with a heart that recognizes we, we have messed up. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We have not done the things that we are supposed to do. Time and again, we've fallen short. But yet, God, we come before you not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of fear or worry, but God, we come to you with the boldness and the confidence that comes from walking in the promises of the Lord. And so God, you've promised that you will set us free. So in the name of Jesus, we pray freedom in our lives. We pray freedom over the sin in our lives. Freedom over the places where we return to sin again and again and again. If you've set us free, we're free. And so God, we thank you for your promise of freedom. We thank you for your promise of grace. We thank you for your promise of mercy. And God, even as we may have to face the consequences of the sin that we've committed, God, I thank you that your grace never runs out and your mercy never runs out. That your freedom never runs out. And so God, my prayer for each one of us gathered here today, for each one of us watching at home, for each one who will hear this. God, I pray for freedom. I pray freedom over God's people in our lives, and in our spirits, that we would not be so entangled with sin that so easily ensnares us, but that we would run free, knowing that you've set us free. God, I thank you for the story of Ezra and the promises that it gives us. And so God, we just pray that this would be the life that we would live. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hillside Church. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Hillside Church, there are a couple places you can go. HillsideAirdrie.ca is our website, 
And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hillside Airdrie. You can also look us up on YouTube and find all of our messages on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to connect to the pastoral team at Hillside, you can do that through our website, hillsideairdrie.ca, and click on About Us in the main menu, and then click on Our Pastors. We're so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Hillside Church, we are a family, not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. As family we go. to me